Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to episode one of season two of Radio Days, the podcast. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography, maybe you need drone footage from a licensed drone pilot, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. You can also hear uh, all the podcasts we did in season one of Radio Days, the podcast there as well. Hear uh, podcasts with Dick Purton, Chuck Santoni, John O'Leary, just to name a few. Um, also, check out the new online merch store. Get your Radio Days, the podcast, hat, shirts, and other merch. All that can be found, again, at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Also, a quick reminder, our documentary about the history of terrestrial radio, Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio, is coming just a few months away. If you are or have ever been a fan of radio, uh, you're going to love this movie. Also, if you'd like to help out and become uh, a producer for this film, click on the Patreon or PayPal links. Remember, every little bit helps. So thank you in advance. Um, well, my guest today is, I guess you would call him a, a triple threat. He has worked in radio, television, and print. He has worked at WDFN, WCHN in Detroit, also uh, KRK in Detroit. You've also seen him on Fox 2. And uh, he is uh, the man half of the legendary Parker and the Man program he hosted with another Detroit favorite, Rob Parker. Did I mention he's a former MAB Sportscaster of the Year? And oh, yeah. He's a graduate of Michigan State University. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one and only man, Mark Wilson. How are you, sir? Oh, man, dude. I was going to say, maybe you just happen to see the awards on the walls while you do that. But, uh, <laughs> I'm only allowed two or three awards because, uh, you know, they, they just get so, so many of them. Who wants to line up a wall with all those MAB and AP awards? Well, you've had an illustrious career. It's uh, it's 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 quite impressive. By the way, Ron, I want to say I didn't know I was episode one for season two. Yeah, well, you know, you're you're a VIP. I got I got to I got to okay. pull out the big names here. You know, <laughs> hey man, that's that's you know, you're an impressive guy. So I I take a, that as a compliment. Oh, thank you very much. Now we're going to talk a lot about your career in, in television, radio as well. But um, before we get to that, I one of my first questions that I always ask people is. Um, what did you listen to on the radio when you were growing up? Were you a, a top 40 guy? Were you a talk radio guy? What were you listening to in your formative age? Well, I grew up in Chicago and I was a huge AM radio that, you know, that's right before FM was a thing really. And AM radio was King. We had WLS and WIND and super CFL and, uh, WMAQ radio at the time, which is also channel five Chicago that the call letters. Uh, so I was a big fan of um, some of the classic DJs, uh, like John Records Landecker, who's a Michigan Stater as well. Uh, Larry Lujak, the famous morning guy, Super Jock. Um, Tommy Edwards, Brant Miller. I, mean, I could go on and on about the Connie Searson when she was at CFL. All legends in, in, in the medium All of radio. Legends. Yeah. Uh, I got, and that's where I you know, I want to say cut my chops. That's where I got interested was driving around, you know, when I finally got a car at <laughs> 16 and we were just cruising around listening to LS music radio, 89. And it really was King AM radio music, believe it or not, was, was King, especially in Chicago back then. 
And uh, that's what I listened to. I was, I wanted to be a disc jockey. I wanted to DJ. That was my thing. I said, I'm going to be a big time famous disc jockey. That's, I never thought of anything else uh, until, well, until all the way to the age of 15, when I discovered what it was like, what a television station was like. And um, that's part of my background, getting to do what I got to do at Channel 5 in Chicago as a kid. Uh, but you asked the question about what did I listen to? That's, that's what I listened. We didn't have a lot of talk radio. I mean, it was really talk radio was your morning shows. Your after was WLS. I mean, that was Lou Jack and that was Edwards and that was uh, Bob Surratt, the BS Love Counselor. Those were the guys that I grew up on and said, "This is what I want to do for a living." How old were you when you realized the powerful, how powerful the medium could be, the, the whole theater of the mind that radio provided? Well, I was young because my father, my dad, was a big advertising man. And who did, he did a lot of his own. Uh, he had great voice, so he did a lot of his own commercials. He would put his voice in. He was a tremendous artist. So we had a lot of contact with the radio and TV in Chicago. So I was real young. I mean, I mean, I, you know, my father was doing that when I was born. So uh, I learned that early. So I would say my whole life has been really dedicated to that. My father didn't push me into it, but he certainly led, you know, just by example, he led me in that direction. So someone from Illinois, Chicago area, how did you end up going to East Lansing? Well, we moved out of Chicago for two years. Two of my former years, we went to Houston, Texas. So I, all of a sudden, I was not in my comfort zone. We went, then my father was smart, and he hated Houston. Moved, we moved back to Chicago so I could finish my high school in the Chicagoland uh, suburbs. And I really, you know, be honest, I wanted to play baseball. And Michigan State, uh, I wanted to be, a, I always wanted to, go to college in the Big Ten. I come from a Big Ten background. My parents went to Wisconsin. My sisters went to Iowa, as it turns out. I got cousins who went to Indiana, um, Illinois. So it's all we're kind of all a Big Ten family. So I knew it was going to be Big Ten. MSU was probably last on my list because I could never remember they existed. Because back in the day when they had just 10 teams, I would go through the 10 schools and I always forgot one. It was Michigan State. Because I'd say Michigan, Ohio State, Indiana, Purdue. And then i go, oh, who am I forgetting? MSU, as it turns out, it was Michigan State that I went to. I really just liked the school. I liked what they offered. They certainly had a great telecommunications program. It was at the time, I think, ranked one of the top five in the nation. So that's what you want. You knew you wanted to study broadcasting in, yeah, in college. Yeah, Talk about that. Yeah, Ron. Yeah, it was, it was going to be either journalism or telecom was going to be the major. Political science is a minor. But I knew all along when I went to Michigan State that I went there for at least academically, for uh, the telecommunications program. You know, the, the people there, the, the professors there at the time, were kind of the fathers of cable TV. Cable TV was, I would say, invented in East Lansing, but pretty close. Tom Baldwin and Dr. Muth and some of the great professors there at the time really were some of the best in the business. And I think it was, um, was it John Abel who actually went to the FCC and ran the show for a while? from MSU. So we had a lot of really good people I knew that going in. What was your first job at broadcasting? It wasn't television, wasn't it? No. No? No, it wasn't television. My Technically, see, I, st I started when I was 15 and I was the editor of the high school paper. I got to go downtown because I wanted to interview Johnny Morris, who was at that time the sports director and anchor at Channel 5. He was also at Channel WBBM Channel 2 for a while. But Johnny, and he played for the Chicago Bears. In fact, and Johnny's still with us. I think he's 87 now he's in California somewhere. But 
I was, I wanted, I just called up his, I said, Hey, I'd like to interview for the school paper. He said, sure. Come on down. And the first minute I walked into the merchandise mart, downtown Chicago, where channel five used to be, I I fell for it. I was, I was smitten. I, I, I the, the action, the activity, the cameras, the lights, the, the, the you know, everything about it. So that was really at, at that age. And uh, by the way, Johnny Morris once held the NFL record for most receptions in a season by a player. <laughs> Uh, little guy, 93 was the record. He did that, I think, in 1964. Just a little sidebar on Johnny Morris. He was so he was a hero of mine, anyhow, growing up as a Chicago Bears fan and then being on TV. I said, This is the way to go get, get a nice sporting career going and then become an anchor. But my first job that I got paid for, although I got paid, believe it or not, um, I became a credentialed member of the media when I was still in high school. And thanks to Mike McClure, the Chicago Bulls, he was the PR director who didn't, you know, look down. Now, you couldn't do that probably today, but in the mid-70s, he credentialed me for Chicago Bulls games. And I would go and I would take my little tape recorder and I would do interviews in the locker room afterwards at the old Chicago Stadium. I did Bulls, Blackhawks. I got to go to the White Sox, Cubs. I was a Cub fan, but you know, kid in the candy I had, store. I bet you were a kid in the candy store. I was really, I really was, and I couldn't even drive yet. I had, I had to get an extra credential for like a buddy of mine to come with me and drive me down there. <laughs> and Mike was nice enough to give me one. But then I would sell, I would give my tapes to a couple of the stations, smaller stations. They give me ten, twenty dollars, just for my, uh, just to drop the tape off. I had nothing else I could do with it. What was I going to do with it? So I would give my tapes and that's my really, that's the first time I got paid to do anything in the radio business, but then jump forward to Michigan state. I started working in East Lansing when I got there, uh, like into my first year and I was sports director of the campus radio station that they gave you a little stipend for doing that. And then I got paid. I started branching off. I got a job at WJM radio doing like news and sports. And then fast forward a couple more years. And I actually became the de facto, uh, production director at WVIC, and I did uh, jockeying work there. I jocked there. And at one point, I think in my, and I worked at the Michigan News Network by the Capitol. I anchored and did cuts and got interviews and whatnot. And shout out to Rob Bakian for being, he was mentioning all the great people that had worked at the Michigan News Network all those years, I think 40 years. And he put my name first. And I was very um, moved by that because I worked with Rob. But he hired me for that. At one point though, Ron, I think I had like, Five paying jobs. Wow. WJM Radio had the TV. Channel 6 was, was in the building. By the way, if you've never been to Channel 6, WLNS TV in Lansing, they have a swimming pool. <laughs> I have not. Do you know why? Because when Harold Gross, because they own that, uh, Gross has started that station like 1947. If TV did not work, he was going to turn the building into a motel. And the, and the building to this day, if you go there, you go, it's really a weird configuration. It looks like a motel. They've never moved, and they still have the swimming pool, I believe. It's still active. But they. But I got a chance, though, in Lansing. What's beautiful about Michigan State, because East Lansing is its own market, it's not like Ann Arbor, where Michigan is kind of relies on Detroit to be their market. East Lansing has its own TV and its own radio, its own stuff. But it was uh, a really good launching pad for anybody that really wanted to get heavy into the business. Because you could work there and make money there and still be in school. And I did that, both in TV and radio. Because I went from Channel 6, when Tim Stout, who's the dean, he's still working in Lansing to this day. He just celebrated, I think, his 50th year in the business. That would be 5 zero. He brought myself and Fred Human with him when he went to Channel 10 in 1980. I was still in college. So at that point, I dropped the other 
jobs and just did that. But I still wasn't certain as to what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to be on television or still disc jockey or do sports. I was doing some play-by-play. I did Michigan State hockey, a little basketball. Because really, for somebody who wanted to do sports on the radio side, it had to be play-by-play because, like you said, there really wasn't sports talk radio at that time. There really wasn't, Ron, and there was, you know, the only thing you could do is you would do sports on, like, news stations where they have a sports guy. They did hire those people back then, but it wasn't a, certainly, I don't know how much of a living you could have made doing that then. But you're right. There was no sports talk radio. There was no dedicated stations for that, as you know. And, but if you could take advantage of places like, you know, that we know about the schools around the country, like Missouri, where they have their own television station run by the students. And we could do that. And and that was a really extra bonus that I didn't think about when I got to, until I got to East Lansing and realized you have three stations, you've got radio, and you hire and employ students. I mean, some fame, John Landecker himself was started in East Lansing as a student. Uh, The late, great Jack Hexum, John Eric Hexum, who was on TV, did a couple of, he was actually going to be an actor who died terribly um, early. But he, he cut his chops doing, uh, I think, Radio WILS, Radio in Lansing. How, how did you end up in Detroit, Mark? I came to a crossroads. in when I, when I graduated MSU, I had two job offers. So I could have stayed in Lansing. I was the number three guy. I got out of the blue. I sent a tape to a station in Miami, Florida, WTVJ. They were at CBS 4 at the time. Now they're NBC 6. And I got a job offer to do play-by-play for a, an international hockey league team. So I, I really, it was a crossroads. So what do I want to do? If I want to do play-by-play, I got to take this gig. I got to take it. It's a step down from the NHL. If I want to go into TV and, and start really doing something, I have to take Miami. Well, Ron, it wasn't that difficult because um, they told me what the pay was for the hockey gig. And then I got the contract offer in Miami. And I went, okay, well, this is... It was, Miami was about 10 times more of the money than, so I went for the money and that's where I started doing tel- television it was between Lansing and then into Miami. I went back to Michigan in 85, 85. Yeah. So it was about four years in Miami. And then, uh, I got to Detroit. Actually, I started Detroit. I did the Judd Heathcote show on TV that was aired by channel two at the time. So I was actually part of channel two as early as the mid eighties. And I went full time after I went to, a. um, I went back to WILX in Lansing, went to WLAJ, got hired by Joel Ferguson to be their sports anchor and sports director at the ABC affiliate. They were just starting it. And then in that time frame, that didn't work out so well. So they were going to drop the news pretty early, about a year or so here, a year or so in. And then I, I went full time to Channel 2. That's how I got to Detroit full time was just uh, uh there weren't Fox 2 at the time. It was Channel 2. I think you're just as well-known as being a radio guy as you are as being a television guy because that's how you were introduced, at least in Detroit, was via television, whether it had been in the Judd Heathcote show or the work you were doing at Channel 2. But um, while you were in Detroit, you got offered – you didn't come to work there, but didn't you turn down a job early on at WDFN? I did the morning show. Um, I uh, warned a Gladstone. I got a call out of the blue. I was at – at my desk, at, at, I was sports director at Channel 2, at Fox 2 then at the time. It was just turning to Fox 94. And she told me that they were going to start a sports radio station, which, you know, we hadn't even thought of at the time. I don't remember anybody saying anything about a full-time sports station until I got that call from Lorna. And she wanted me to meet with her. And we went to, uh, I believe, the Woodbridge Tavern. 
downtown. She offered, she basically offered me the gig. She says, I've seen you on TV. She was coming from Chicago. She was at WGN. And she's, she, you know, I don't, I don't tell the story much, but she basically said, it's yours if you want it. And the money was very good. And I just decided, and at the time I had my honey and I didn't, I didn't want to work all the sure. time. Sure. We, we wanted to do stuff. And, I, and she, she wanted me to do it. And I said, honey, if I do it, I'm never going to see you because I'm going to work till midnight or whatever at the TV. I'll go to sleep. I'll get up and have to do the morning show at six in the morning and then I'll be exhausted and we won't do it. I just, that's my reason for not taking it. I didn't, I didn't want to be working all the time. I just, I'd always dedicated myself to having a life and not working all the time, but yes. Uh, and then I think they went, I think they went with Larry and, and Butch and they started that, uh, that project in July of 94. And it may, it may seem weird now, but at the time, I mean, Detroit radio and sports radio, it's synonymous, but at the time, like you said, there wasn't anything like that. And obviously the fan just blew up. It captured everybody's imagination with the, Oh, it was unbelievable. The, yeah. I worked around, I started almost from inception with ESPN too, back in the late seven, 1979, when they went on the air, I think I was on sports center the second month or something. They were even on because back then to me, this is really ESPN is the most interesting thing. They didn't have reporters back then. So they relied on some of the, and it was usually the smaller market guys because they would pay for everything. They would ask you to go and do stuff for them, or what did you have? They had no product. There was, it's hard to explain that to people, to even my own nephews. I can't explain ESPN in the early days because all they had was Sports Center, a half hour show, and they had no product. There was no games went on everywhere. I remember, I remember watching figure eight race car driving. I remember yeah. watching dart competitions. Well, the joke was Australian rules football. Because they was always available on this, uh, you know, back then the satellite was rare, it was due and. That was something they could they could rip off the satellite, but they didn't have reporters, so they relied on guys like myself and Fred Human to send. I mean, there were times where I literally was going to the airport because we had to send the tapes by an airplane. There was no way to get them there, so we put them in a we we record them or dub over whatever we had under a three quarter inch tape. We put it in a bag. We drive to Lansing Capital City Airport and stick it on a plane. They'd pick it up in Hartford and then uh, shuttle it over to Bristol. We did that for years, Ron. Wow, that's For cool. years, because they really didn't get a staff of reporters until about the late 80s. They didn't have the money yet. So they, but they paid us for everything we did. There were, I used to joke that I couldn't go to my mailbox and not see a check from ESPN every day. <laughs> it was like a check every day from ESPN. 150 bucks here, 200 bucks here, 300 bucks. It was a really great source of secondary income. So I had that anyhow. So I was doing that as well, but it wasn't that difficult because they would take what we already did and then I would send it to them. Imagine having ESPN producers. And I'm not going to mention their names. Mike Matters, Mike Bogad, Gil Parmalee, <laughs> who would call us and say, what do you guys have? Now, somebody once asked me, I said, why do they want all that Detroit or Lansing stuff? I said, you've got to remember, those teams are playing other teams from other cities. Right. One time he called and said, you going to the Tiger-Yankee game? I said, I wasn't. And I said, but I can. He said, and all he wanted was Yankee stuff. So I went and did like Don Mattingly or Dave Winfield, and then I would send it to him. That's how we did it back then with ESPN. So I did that for years, years and years. That's That sounds gratifying. Plus, I'm sure it helped your street credit, your day job. I got recognized. I would be, I got recognized from ESPN. People would see me because I, I would do some live shots for them and when I did packages, I did stand-ups. They sent me an ESPN mic flag even. So as as we mentioned, DFN blew up. It captured yeah. Detroit's imagination. 
But I want to talk about your time at KRK. Did you go to 97.1 before they flipped the sports, or was that is that when you came? It's funny that people don't remember that now because it's been so long. No, when we left DFN, we it was Rob called me and said, dude, do you know about 97.1? I thought at the time they were still like star 97 or something. I didn't even know they'd go to a talk format. It was very early in that process. He said, and he's the one who told me, he said, you should, he, he always thinks that I should do the work. So he said, why don't you call them? <laughs> Come on, Mark. Come on, Mark, just call them. But I, I give him credit because he said, you call. He was busy with the, he, remember, he was working at the paper in Detroit News. And I said, yeah, I'll call. He said, see if there's what they're doing over there. So I made a call to the then program director, Terry Lieberman. This was, I mean, Ron, this was in, there weren't even, there was 0.0 with no revenue. They weren't even, nothing was happening. Steve Dahl, they had on from Chicago, who pulled the plug on him one day that was, he was off the air. He literally pulled the patch. I called Terry Lieberman and Terry said, God, he didn't even, he's from, he came from Ohio. The, the GM there, Steve said, a crop he had come from, I think, Iowa. They didn't even know we were. But he said, come on over, we'll talk. Now at the time, 97.1 was in the Channel 2 building. I had to go back to Channel 2. That's where all the CBS radio stations were, were, was at the Nine Mile facility. I thought I'd never have to go back to Channel 2 again. Here I'm going back to like a year later, that, after I left 2. So I went over there, and uh, they had an interest in having a sports show. But no, this was the hot talk format. This was CBS's idea. I think they had 29 stations around the country. Howard Stern was, was doing the morning show, right? Howard had just started doing the morning because originally Mancow, out of, Mancow Muller out of Chicago was going to do the morning. There's a great story about, and I think I'm the one that saved Howard in Detroit because my our PD wanted to drop him. He was doing terribly, Ron. They were he was like out of 33 or whatever, or whatever. He never played here in Detroit. He never. I mean, we had JJ in the until, morning crew. Until, we had Drew and Mike. It, yeah. Until it got hot, and then he did. Towards the end, right before you know, he didn't leave. You know, until he went over to Sirius XM. He was still our morning show. But. When we first started there, they were just starting. Dominsky and Doyle had just been hired. Ed Till had just been hired. And they started to get local. And they started to, to, to roll a little bit. Started to make, so the numbers went up. They started to make some money. Started to get some more advertising in a bigger way. Revenue went up. Time spent listening. TSL was off the charts. We started to move that pretty quick. But at the beginning, it was they were on the cusp of dropping the whole idea of doing the hot talk format. No, the sports wow. didn't come till 2007. 97.1 did not turn to all sports till October of 2007, I want to say. So when so oh. so you were working there before then. So what kind oh, of we yeah. started there in ninety nine. Yeah. So what were you, what were you doing? What kind of topics? Just hot whatever was the topic of- you know, we, we, we were we were mindful of the fact it wasn't a sports station. And in fact there was only two I want to say two shows on the entire CBS chain that were doing that had a sports show. It was us and the junkies in Washington, D.C. The sports, we had kind of kindred spirits because the sports junkies in D.C. were big time in, in Washington. And we wanted to do the same. And we kind of turned that into something at KRK. But at the, you know, we got, we were mindful of the fact that, you know, that we, we weren't going to just be all sports. It was going to be more, quote unquote, I'm doing the air quotes, you can't see it, but uh, guy talk. And Rob and I bought into that, especially in that uh, first hour, because we were following Dominsky and Doyle, or we had Kramer and Twitch, or whatever the shows that started coming on with us, and we wanted to keep the audience, and it really started to generate some 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 push. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, because I do want to ask you about the genesis of your partnership with Rob Parker. How did you okay. guys get paired up, if you would talk about that? Well, I was doing the... I, I was, 
when I left Channel 2, uh, Greg Henson called me and said, hey, do you want to do some work here? And my, I was bound and determined to not work for a while. I had been working since the 70s, and now it's the late 90s, and, and I, 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 I defer to my honey at the time. And we had a place in Sarasota, Florida. She was working down there, and uh, we had a place on Siesta Key, and I was bound and determined to spend like a whole year on Siesta Key, just kicking back, toes in the sand, getting in good shape, <laughs> hitting the water, right. hitting the Gulf of Mexico. We lived right next to the Gulf of Mexico. And after a couple, he, he kind of wore me down and I finally agreed to go do it. And I was only going to do part-time at DFN and I did that for a while. And then all of a sudden he came to myself and Pat Caputo and said, would you guys like to do the morning show? It was when the wings were getting, you know, the wings were rolling and they were going for that cup. And, and so we started the morning show. Fun time to live in Detroit. Fun, fun time. time. Fun time, man. I mean, that was a hell of a run. A lot of years. By the but way, I just was... I just recently came across my hockey town. Hey, hey, hockey towns, Steve CD. Remember how often that got played? Hey, hey, hockey town. Absolutely. Are you kidding? That'll be a time period that no one will ever forget. That was incredible. So we turned, but and the morning show was banging it. I mean, so it was just Pat and I. But the hockey season was over, and the Wings won the. It was the second cup. It was ninety eight, and he said, and 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 Greg uh, put a couple of contracts in front of us and said. I said, what do you want to do? He wants to just stop doing it. He goes, no, I want to keep it going. Well, I said, we're going to call it the Red Wing Playoff Morning Show with somewhere Red Wing. He said, I don't care if you call it, you know, Stink Bomb and, 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 and Tushy. <laughs> I, he just wanted a morning show. So I figured Pat and I were going to do it. And I, I was all in. When I saw what the numbers were, I was way in. And I, I looked, and Pat was right next to me. And I said, okay, Pat, let's go. And he goes, I'm not doing it. I can't do it. I'm, he's, remember, Pat was uh, had his Oakland Press duties. He was a columnist of the Oakland Press. He was covering Tiger Games for the wee hours. The poor guy, you know, to, to do that and be done writing at one or two in the morning, go home for fifth, you know, five seconds, and then come back again to do the morning show was really exhausting. I, I got it. I understood. So he, he begged off. And I said, I looked at Henson. I said, Greg, what do you want to do? And to Greg's credit, he said, let's find you a partner. And we actually brought people in. People don't forget, they did a week with me. Uh, including, uh, I'll give you a name, Craig Carton, wow. who's in New York now, who who had a documentary about him on HBO because of his criminal activities. And now he's back on the air in New York, but he did a week and we didn't hire Craig. I think he ended up going to Denver at that point. Uh, we brought in a, a woman. We brought in uh, CJ Silas, who's still working in the business. She was out of Seattle. We brought in a bunch of people and then nobody... We didn't decide on anybody. And then out of the blue, Greg is the one who said, what about Rob Parker? And I said, Rob, well, he's in New York. Yeah, but would you, I said, uh, he's in New York. <laughs> why, why the hell would he leave New York? It's his dream place. I didn't know Rob that well. We know, I you know, knew him from the trail, you know, covering events and stuff. And I said, if Rob wants to come back, let's give it a shot. And he came back, we hit it off immediately. And uh, that's when, that's how it started. He just came back and we were, we were, Brothers from other mothers from that point, uh, that point on. Was the the Parker and the man immediate, or did that take some time to gradually? How did you come up with that marketing? Because it was brilliant with the name. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna break some news for you. You know what the original name Rob wanted the wanted the show to be called? Oh, I can't wait to hear this. All right, Rob's an old TV fan. He loves old television. He loves the Golden Girls. Everybody knows that if they've listened to the show. He loves the Golden Girls. <laughs> He's been on the Golden Girl cruise, Ron. Um, he wanted the show to be called The Morning Munsters. I'll let you marinate on that for a second. I did put my foot down on that one. I did not, I'm not going to be The Morning Munsters. The Monster. Morning and Munsters. And, and I, didn't, I, I did not have to have my name on the show. 
It did, that didn't right. bother. So, so when he came out, he loves Chico and the Man. That's where it came from. Yeah, he was from Chico and the Man. He loved that old show. Jack that was Albert's a great show, a yeah. And I said, yes. And, and you know why? Because, and I remember going back home and saying, oh, honey, he wants to call the show Parker and the Man. He said, she said, so I can be the woman. <laughs> I said, that would be true. You'd be the woman. You know, most people I talk to, they're fans. They, they have a certain perception of Rob. And although I don't know him well, I have spent some time with him, and I've talked to others who do know him. Across the board, they all speak fondly of him and talk about how different he is in real life than his perception. What do sports fans get wrong about Rob Parker? He's an unbelievable guy, very caring, loves people to like it's nobody's business, loves travel. He's been to all – how many continents do we have? Eight today? <laughs> how many continents are there? He's been to them all, hasn't he? He's been all. He went to Antarctica in uh, right before the pandemic last year in, in February, I believe, of twenty. That was his last one. He is. He'll do anything for anybody that I. I cannot say enough. You know, people say, "How do you work with that guy?" I said, "How do I not work with him?" He's the greatest promoter. He knows what he's doing. He's very creative, and he's just an unbelievably terrific human being. I know it's you know people. Why he's like this and that? I said, "No, no, no." And it's not an act. He does believe what he believes, have certain causes he believes heavily in, and he pushes them. But he's when you meet him in person, he's not one of these guys who meet in person and he'll look around the room. He stares at you and listens to you. He never does that to people. I, that's one of his greatest gifts. I'm not probably as good as, as, as he is at that. But I, I mean, you, I could sit here and glow about him for an hour. You know, it, it's interesting that you say that because one of the best advice I got early in my radio career, Mark, was and it, it, it was Joe Gannon, the appliance doctor, when I interned at WJR back oh, in yeah, 2000. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. He told me, he said, treat famous people like they're everyday people and treat everyday people like they're celebrities and you will have great success. And that no one does that great, like Rob Parker. Yeah, that is probably a very good, accurate description of uh, in, a, in a sentence about what he's like. I don't think in 20, we've been together now for 20, I still call us together. He still sticks me occasionally on his uh, odd couple Fox Sports radio show with Chris Broussard when Chris isn't there. But uh, I don't think we've had a terse word in 23 years, whatever it is now. That's impressive. Yeah, I can't remember. He says there was, well, remember that? I said, no, I don't remember that. But it couldn't have been very important. But not a terse we've never had an, uh, a fallout or anything like that it's a, it's been a, it's been amazing at the height of your success at 971 you guys were unceremoniously let go at KRK and and the story goes it was to make room for the red wings and the tigers who got who came to the station but right. that yeah. had to be a tough blow because you guys were atop of the ratings how, what oh, how, right. how does someone who's so successful be how do you take the news that you're no longer going to have a job no i w- i will tell you from when we started there was 0.0 in the numbers and no not a nickel of revenue. We made it into a place with two number one shows. Top, well, I think the top TSL, Tim spent listening station in the in in one of the top of the country, because we were right before PPM back then. And I mean, written up everywhere for what we had done. Uh, so yes, we were rolling. Uh, that was pretty cool. But one of our last shows, we had an amazing night at Buffalo Wild Wings. One of our successes was the fact we were out all the time. My philosophy has always been, if I never see the inside of a studio, and we had a nice studio, I will be a very happy man because it means we're out, we're meeting people. I love it when we're around the people. We had a great street team. Uh, We're making money for the station. We're making money for us. That was the goal. And we had, I mean, literally one of the greatest nights we had was this jam-packed, 
I remember walking it. It was in Lake Orion, by, down by the from the palace. And I asked the owner at the time of the Buffalo Wild Wings. I said, "Wow, you guys do a great business." Well, I think it was a Thursday night. It was around Christmas of uh, the end of 07, 06. And he said, "No, they're here for you." And I and it was jammed. It was packed. I couldn't even get in. I couldn't park. I had to park across the street. Wow, park across, that's uh, crazy. Lapeer. I parked right, way across Lapeer. I had to walk across Lapeer. And three days, it was right at the start. I always say we went to 07 because we were well into 07. We finally got finished with our paperwork and whatnot. Um, that's when the Wings and the Tigers were announced that they were going to be, that CBS had, they wrestled them away. We thought JR was going to get them back. They did not. Had JR gotten them back, we wouldn't have left. But because we would only have been on some nights, the Wings were starting right away. This was January of 07. Uh, remember, they're they're not going to be a sports station yet. That wasn't decided till later in the year. They were going to be a hot talk format with sports on it. That's all it was going to be. There was no talk of ch- turning at that time that I knew of, and I had talked to Kevin Murphy, who was the GM at the time. There was no discussion that that was going to be an all-sports station. No way, no how, as Rob would say. So there would be, Rob, there'd be some nights we'd be on two times a week. Well, they're not going to pay us that kind of uh, six figures to be on two times a week. Sometimes they get in the they get in the baseball season and hockey's still going on. We'd be on no times a week, right? And and even just trying to find something else to do made no sense. So when 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 they did the deed, we weren't that shocked as soon as we knew that the teams were coming, and uh, it really didn't matter because within a matter of a cup of a month we were back on the air at CHB. So it wasn't that big a deal. I look back now and maybe I should have been more perturbed by it, but uh, it, I'm sure you were just shocked. I, I wasn't. I wasn't because I had talked to enough people who we thought it was a real possibility to get the sports at night, and we would just be out. We been. It was a good. We've been there eight years. But while you were there, I mentioned Michelle McCormick. We both are very yes. fond of her. She is a yes. very talented. She's working in Grand Rapids, but uh, yes. everybody thinks that you know it was just to be. It was her and Greg, but she'd worked at KRK before that as well. Talk about Michelle McCormick. Yeah, well, Michelle, I remember her tape coming. He played her tape for me. And so, what do you think about her? And I went, who, what, what do we have here? Who's this? And she goes, she's in Grand Rapids. And I said, what are you going to bring her on? And she said, I said, bring her on. What are you going to do? Scott and Casey was on the air. Add her to the Scott and Casey show. No, I remember he, he I, I didn't sign off on Michelle, but I remember hearing her tape. That he, I'm never, like it was yesterday. And he hired her. And she was on, it was, I think they turned, they changed the name to Scott, Casey, and Michelle. Eventually, Scott and Casey left, and then they started Motor City Middays. And she is unbelievably talented. She's incredible on her feet. She's amazingly open about a lot of things. And she was perfect for the format. Perfect. In fact, I, I think I told her once, we had a KLSX in Los Angeles had a show called uh, Heidi, Frosty, and Frank. And Heidi Hamilton, I thought the world of. I said, Michelle's, Michelle's as good or better than Heidi. She might be the best in this business. She might be the best person doing the hot talk format that we have in the country. You know, 97.1, when, now that we're talking about it, you've mentioned so many names, Ed Till, Domensky and Doyle, you know, yep. Greg Henson, you and Rob. Uh, I, 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 this is a person I have to ask you about because him and I went to Specs together, and I've always paid attention to his career, and he started at 97.1 right out of Specs, and he eventually became a morning man there and, and a couple other stations later, and that's Bill McAllister, another talented guy. Bill and Jessica Hall... I told you this when we talked about Jessica being my radio wife because she went came with me in 2010, and we went we rolled out to Las Vegas and did a show here in Vegas for a while. Um, that was really the additions to that program that made Motor City Middays 
uh, Greg and Michelle started it, Bill and Jessica, and Bill, again, talented, hugely talented. A um, lot more than he sometimes even thinks he is. I, I, just, I always said that about Bill. Uh, and, then, and it showed he still has a career to this day. But Jessica, Bill, and they really added on to that group and made that show. And then when Greg left and Jay Towers joined on, and I would come in and sub sometimes. Uh, Craig Schwab was our new program director at the time, and we hit it off right, right away. And occasionally, if Jay or Michelle were had a day off or whatever, he'd call me and say, you want to come in and do the show? I said, how much, how much we pay him? No. <laughs> <laughs> how much addition is that going to be on that check? No, I said, that'd be fun. And I would come in and I would sub, and I would be on the show with Jay or Michelle and, and Bill. And so I got to do sh shows with Bill and with Jess at 97 before I took Jessica and took her to Las Vegas uh, where we did a show here. You're talking about my favorite people, all right? <laughs> I've been really lucky, Ron, over the course of, since the mid-70s, I have worked with some unbelievable people. I got to anchor with Bill Bonds. Are you kidding? But I got to anchor with Bill. I got to anchor with two of the most iconic news anchors ever. Ralph Rennick, who hired me in Miami, literally started television in the in I think in the country because he started anchoring in 1948 or whatever it was before there was TV, TV news, and there was no local TV news. Ralph was a legend in South Florida, actually ran for governor. And a quick story about Rennick, just because I want to say it. The story is that the network wanted him to join the network at one point and be their main guy. He turned it down because he didn't think network news was viable at the time. He said local's the way to go. So they had to go to their second choice, who was Walter Cronkite. Wow. How about that? How about that guy? Wow, that guy did a couple things. But he you, that crack guy, it was a pretty good move on CBS when yeah, Ralph turned up. I'll but say. I, so, I'm, so I'm just saying that I got to work with a lot of big, great people, and it's just amazing how many people. Yeah. And I would include all those people we had at ninety-seven-one. Uh, there was, I had there was. I'm telling you, we walk into that building. We moved from when they moved from channel the uh, channel two building on Nine Mile over to Twelve Mile in Greenfield, and we had that building to ourselves. It was really a great time to be doing that. That it was a pleasure to walk in there day in and day out. It sounds like it was just a big party because you had so many great people, great at what they were doing. I mean, did you feed off of each other? Did you learn something in the process? I hope. Oh yeah, I, I, I even just following um, D and D, Dominski and Joe. We loved Jeff and Bill, um, and Beaver and Rudy and the guys that were part of that show. Uh, we saw what it was like to be, to, to we saw them skyrocket and what they did to get that done and the wing cup and all the stuff they did. And it, we, yes, and we learned a lot from watching, listening to Motor City Midday. I listened all the time. I even would include Michelle in some of the bits that I would put together for the, for our show. Cause she was, I loved her voice to begin with and she was funny. And like you said, and she had a lot of stuff to offer, so I would actually put it. I said, Michelle, can you just do a bit for me? I need you to write here. Just read this. <laughs> just cold, cold read it. Well, I'm and, glad I'm glad you brought that up because this is something I want to ask you, and this is this is one of the things yeah, that I like sir. to do when I have an opportunity to do this show is give us yeah. some insight on you and Rob are doing the show, and you have help from some of the people, Michelle and others that are doing helping you out. Yeah, we had, produ what, we had producers. We had talk to me about how you did your show prep. What did you do before you went on the air? Did it start after you got off the air before the the, the, the day before? Well, we're doing sports, so obviously we're we're watching. You know, twenty four seven we're doing sports, so we got the sports thing down. Um, I'd love to tell you, Ron, that we had big show meetings, but we didn't. We would get together for a few minutes, 
because we were so simpatico on the same page and we would i'd call i'd talk to our we had producers we had gavin and Lodge, and there were other we had a lot of really good actual interns our interns were good and i would we would come up with stuff and we would just kind of ad lib it it do it we didn't do show prep in the classic sense that we sat around and we blocked things out and we had such great times with our callers we had our games we played a game every night we you don't see that anymore we played we offered good prizes uh that was i was a stickler for prize radio i do think you have to sometimes bait your listeners a little bit i'm not saying you have to bribe them but you can bait them you can give we have prizes to offer let's let's make a big deal about it and we would have a show every, we have a different game every night whether even if it was trash talking tuesday or as the nose grows wednesday or sports execution on thursday or my trivial thing on you can't do trivial anymore because wikipedia blew that out of the water that'd be hard to do unless it was crazy but we we that was what we had our little tenets that we did every day so we kind of it kind of just was automatic we just knew what we were going to do and it would just i would call rob in the middle of the day say hey let dude you see the thing on the thing let's do the thing about the thing okay let's do the thing about the thing and it was that simple. It was that easy. And we would just roll. And it was, that's, I don't, I don't have a great story for you as to us sitting down to meetings. We didn't, we weren't big fans of meetings. Sure. Your time at w, WDFN, your time at KRK 97.1. I'm not asking you to pick a favorite, but how were the two experiences different? Well, I wouldn't, have, we were certainly at KRK longer than DFN. DFN had great people too. I love, you know, my first show uh, was with Jamie Samuelson. And Jamie died last year in his 40s, was he 48, 49? So when Jamie, I mean, I I remembered the story about how I, my first show at DFN was with Jamie. I was doing the sub stuff and uh, it was the day after Craig, uh, Craig, Greg decided to, uh, you know, say, what do you want to do something? I said, yes, he was excited. And I said, when do you want to start? I said, whenever. He said, how about tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'm not going to be there, Jamie. Yeah, he had to do the show with Jamie. He was the first one I did. So we had, we had Terry Foster and, you know, there was great people there too. Um, the difference I think might've been the building. You know, we were back in the old little garage. What was uh, whatever street that was there down downtown up Joe Campo or whatever, you know, that was not a great place. It was a tiny little play. It was okay, but we had a much bigger facility at uh, when we moved over to 12 mile Greenfield at 97 one gave us more room. We had our own, we didn't have an office at DFN. We had a beautiful office at, 97 months. So I think the accommodations were probably the only difference because the people were great everywhere we went. Talk about your reunite your your reunion uh, with Robin 07 for the gig at uh, CHB. Well, we were only off the air for a month, and then we went to C- uh, he, again. He called me and said, "Hey, call CHB." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "I don't know what that is," and it, who knew that they were a, what fifty thousand watt powerhouse? Tell me from time to time you say you say to Rob, "No way, no how." I, I think I did it the other day. <laughs> is it is it bad that I always think of, of, of Tom Brady when I hear him say that? <laughs> yeah, he loves his Tom Brady, doesn't he? Um, but when we went to CHP, they, that was Radio 1. And Radio 1 had a, boy, did they, talk about great people that we loved being around. As people go, that, that were hard to beat. The sales, the sales staff, the other they had two FMs in the building, you know, the hip-hop. And I loved Radio 1. I loved working with them. They were great people. And they, they took to us immediately and they brought us on to do nights and we moved quickly into afternoon drive. And then of course, uh, in 2008 came the crisis, came the crash. 
and Radio One disbanded every bit of their talk programming around the country. That was Alfred Liggins. That was the third largest radio company at the time in the world, I think, behind uh, CBS and uh, and uh, whatever iHeart, uh, uh, Clear Channel at the time. So we were only on there for a year and a half, and I wish we had been on there longer because that. But they, that, there wasn't it wasn't any fault of ours or anybody. They just dropped that when the uh, when the crash hit in the summer of '08. Yeah, a lot of jobs were affected, but in radio, oh, yeah, it, it was a bloodbath in radio. Dude, I mean, everybody I, got laid off. Every time I talk about '08, I say, yeah, you know, myself and uh, you know, 60 million of my closest friends. I, here's, I was teaching at Specs, working, running the ribbon boards at Comerica Park, and working part time at JR. And in two weeks, I was out of a job. During the summer of '08. Yeah, yeah, that was. I mean, people forget. It's been now 13 years. They forget what that was like. There's a lot of forgetting about that time period. Even what year it was. I had someone said it happened in '09. I said no, it was '08. <laughs> no, 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 '09. <laughs> it was in '08. It was summertime, and you know, if you had anything in the stock market, you were screwed. I mean, we all know how that went. And I think there are people that are struggling mightily to this day because of 08. But we would have been, I think that CHB gig would have been ours for a long time had that not have happened. We really enjoyed working there. We had a great studio. Mildred Gaddis was fantastic. I love Mildred too. She's a longtime great Detroit radio veteran. I mean, it doesn't get better than Mildred Gaddis. You were in Detroit for a long time, whether it be the fan, KRK, or your your, your different stints. At, I think you were at CBS and Fox 2. Talk, talk about some of the cool things that you got to experience because of what you did for a living. Well, you know, you jump forward. When I went back, when we did our show in Las Vegas, I remember in, in 2012, I went and ran. I was program director and operations manager at 1090 at CAR. And that was going to be a thing, Ron. That was that was a we believed we were going to compete with 97.1. There's no competition for that station in Detroit. None. 97.1 stands on its own. That's rare. There's no other major market or big market that doesn't have at least three or four sports talk stations. So when I went to 1090, I thought we were going to make that happen. We had a brand new building. I wish you could see it. It's at Fort about uh, Telegraph and 14. It's uh, probably there to this day. We had we had built it from the ground up. It was Joe Dumar's former business offices. And we you should see what we had created. We were about to move in there. This is in 2013. So we were on the air. A lot of people don't know that, you know, but we tried our best and we were starting to get listeners and we we're starting to really push it. We had a good cast of people, Art Regner and Eddie Mio and uh, Damon Perry was there and Rob Wise. And I did a nighttime show. So I was program director of operations at nighttime. But this was, you asked me how cool things I did. That was really a cool thing because I got to run the station the way I wanted to. But we had ownership problems and we folded the project. That's unfortunate. If that wouldn't have happened, do you think that you'd still be doing something similar, running radio stations with your experience? I I think you would have been great. I'll I'll just say it to you. I thought 1090 was going to be my last job. I thought I was going to have that till I retired. I really did. I thought that we're, we're going to make this happen. We had a new signal. We had new sticks out in the Milford Wixom area. Uh, we were going to move over to 1160. You know, the family, the Brock family owned a bunch of stations. And we were going to put 1090, something else on 1090. We were going to do the sports on 1160 with a, a larger signal and new sticks. Uh, so that should have been my last job. It just, it, it, you know, things don't work out the way you want it to. The way it goes. Grow up. That's how I always take <laughs> stuff. You know, put your big boy pants on and deal with it. Because um, uh, I got a ton of great things I got to do over the years starting in TV and radio. Who was probably the most famous person you've ever interviewed or, or spent time with? I mean, I, Bill Clinton. I mean, I've talked to presidents. I don't know. You know, everybody. I mean, uh, Jack Nicholas. Um, I love talking to Jack. That was one of my favorite people. Um Ben Hogan, 
A lot of people don't get to talk to Ben Hogan. I got to do Ben Hogan. I mean, everybody. I mean, I, I, I don't know if there's somebody who can tell me that I didn't talk to. I just don't know how. I guess I, I don't take. I'm not that starstruck by celebrity or even big athletes. So I, you know, it's Tom Brady. I mean, I had Brady at Michigan. Yeah. Um, saw Brady at Michigan. I mean, it doesn't get bigger than Tom Brady right now. No, I mean, he's just. I can't believe what he's doing at his age. I mean, if you get him out of the pocket, he looks like your uncle at a at a graduation party. But if you let him stay in that right. pocket, you know, he looks like Dan Marino when he was 24 right. years old. And I got Dan Marino. I mean, I worked in Miami. Marino when he was drafted. I was there. So talk about your move to Vegas. When and, and why did this happen? Well, I've always liked well, – the first time I ever came out here, I fell for this place uh, back in the 90s. I, everything about it, I said, what do we have here? This is unbelievable. I mean, I – that was that was in the nine. That was in the middle nineties. I got to go to our TNDA conference, and I was asked. To, and I had never been here before, even though I'd spent time in California in the late eighties. I never suggested to the person I was with that we should go to Vegas. I don't know why, because uh, she lived in Los Angeles, and I was out there a lot. But um, I fell for this, and then so I said, one day I don't know what to do here, but I want to do something here, and and then I'd come out all the time for vacations and stay at the hotel you know, on the strip. I'd never left, actually left the strip ever. And then finally, when we went in 2010, I, I said, let's do a radio show in Vegas. And Jessica and I came out and we were on KLAV and we did a nighttime radio show and we had a great time. We cut that project short, Ron, because we had some, uh, there was some personal stuff that went on, family members who passed away and whatnot. So we just ended that. But I said, one day I'm coming back again <laughs> to live maybe for good after those projects, after because, you know, we went back to DFN after the 1090 project. We went back in, in 2014. We actually put together the 20th anniversary of DFN. Party. I forgot all about that. Yeah, I'm sorry to yeah, ask we you went, about that. We went back to DFN. Uh, at that point, they're at the 12 Mile and Halstead building. And Matt Shepard was doing mornings, who does the Tigers now, does a great job with the Tigers. And we really enjoyed having Matt in the morning. We were at night. We wanted to help the station do something with that, get that back up there. Every month we were there, I think the numbers went up a tick. And then that project again ended because of some ownership stuff. Well, you know, it was paying the freight. It just happens, you know, to no fault of our own. Um, and after that happened, I said, you know what? I, I've had enough. I'm going to go. I'm going to see what's out there. And then, of course, we had the snow. <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday in 15, if you remember, like a 30-inch snowstorm. Yeah. Okay, well, you asked me why I went back to Vegas. <laughs> Good reason. I started scheming that day as I was cleaning two cars, snow off two cars, like all night long. I said, I'm done. I can't do winter anymore. I'm too old for winter. So I schemed uh, to leave, and by June 1st of 15, I was uh, back out in Las Vegas, and I've been here since. I, I do have to go back and ask you something, because for me personally, I, I try to keep my personal things out of this, but what I remember sure. about Mark Wilson, even before Parker and the Man, is yeah. I used to refer to you to my friends as the Sonny Elliott of sports. And, and and what I mean by that is it, Sonny Elliott was obviously a weatherman, but he added so many. You can compare me to Sonny. I love Sonny. Because of your quick wit, and you added that. Like, when you were on television especially, it, you weren't like the other – Sportscasters, you you were you were you were funny, but you weren't contrived funny. You were just quick witted funny. What would go into you know, your thought process before you would go on the air? I mean, and I, how, you did you? I, pre I I really appreciate it. that's very nice of you to say, because you know I was on the air with Bernie Bernie still Smilovitz is still there. Donnie Shea, Don is one of my favorite people, and they're they're great sports guys, and they have their own little wit and their humor. We know what Bernie's humor is, and I mean I was and Van Earl was there at the time. Van Earl had replaced Bernie before Bernie came back. 
federal right. And so they were good people. I and mean, those are those aren't schlubs. But you know what really helped Ron was cutting my chops in Lansing. I was really able to learn a lot just doing by example in Lansing and what I wanted to be when I grew up on the TV side. And I have guys to this day, I have my little protégés who believe we have a certain philosophy about making sports on television. It should be informative, but also fun. So entertaining and informative. And I got a guy in Los Angeles, a uh, buddy of mine's in Phoenix, guy that I brought on to Channel 10, who subscribed to that philosophy to this day. So I have this little group of people that, I mean, I, I talked to one of the, the guys, the big timer in LA, just last night, and we all buy into this. You have to have a philosophy of whether, how you want to do it. And I was always about making it, if, if you're not, look, if it's not interesting to watch, you're not going to watch it. So then what, then the information doesn't matter either. Right. So I always wanted to have a good time doing it while, while using the information as the platform. And I learned that in Lansing. I got, because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. No one ever told me what to do in Lansing. Tim Stout was great with me. when I, I worked for Tim twice at Channel 10. And that really made a difference because I did what I wanted to do. And that caught the attention of the news director at the time at Channel 2. And that's why he wanted me there full time, not just with the Heathcote show or doing some part time stuff at the time for Freddie McLeod or whatever, or Eli Zarek. So that's when I went over there. So I, to answer your question, I think it is because, and I would recommend this to anybody, that they started a smaller market where they can really relax and do what they want to do and get the opportunity to do that by the leadership there. And I was able to do that, and that really helped. So as we wrap up, Mark, what are you doing these days besides uh, sweating? What do you mean wrap your up? I thought we were going to do four hours, right? <laughs> no, I try to keep it to an hour. But I, I, I could, we could probably do a whole other episode because there's still questions that I have. Well, but that, what, what no, are you doing today? Um, I... Las Vegas is not the best local radio or TV market, okay? It's not. They need to get bigger time because we got the Raiders and the Golden Knights. We're playing tonight. And baseball's coming and the NBA's coming. It's going to happen. We just got lacrosse yesterday, <laughs> the National Lacrosse League. But they're very small time in there. You would not believe you come out here and, you know, who comes out here and listens to their local radio here? Nobody. And their numbers reflect that they have no numbers. Very small numbers. So it's not really, I've been on the air locally at the Lotus Properties a couple of times. They don't, they don't move me. Um, maybe they'll get better as time goes by. As far as television, not even a thing. So I don't do a lot of local. What I do do here is I do some national. I was doing NBC Sports Radio until they folded. And then, uh, but Rob is kind enough and Bernie Fratto, who worked on our show, has, has a radio show on Fox Sports Radio. So Scott and those guys have been nice enough to let me do some shows there. I do that. I do some voice work. I've done that for years. Um, other than that, uh, I just like kicking it at the pool. <laughs> I, I do know that you, in, in addition to kicking it at the pool, you do still follow uh, sports in Detroit. And can oh, you give, yeah, can no, you give us do, a reason why we should be optimistic about any of these teams? Well, I, you know why I do that? Because on my social medias, on my Twitter, on my Facebook, I have all the, I, I, the Detroit people like that. And I want that to be there for them. I've actually had people say to me, you know, keep doing, you know, do, I do the Tigers every night. I just do something. It doesn't take me long. Um, why should you be optimistic? Well, that's a great question, Ron Robinson. Um, do you know the, who the last Detroit pro sports team is right now to win a playoff game? Okay, I'm going to have to think about this, but I'm going to say 
I'm going to say it was probably it the Pistons. Was it the Pistons? The last pro sports team in Detroit to win a playoff, not a series. A game. A had, game. had to be the Red Wings. Red Wings. It was, it was the Wings in 16. They lost to the Lightning four games to one. Hmm. The, the, we all know the Lions haven't won a playoff game since 90, the 91 season, right? We all yeah. know that. Yeah. 63 years since they won a title. The Pistons, and I was sitting there that night, the fact that I know this bothers me. May 26, 2008, I was on press row at the Palace when the Pistons beat the Celtics in Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, if you, now, Ron, if you were sitting next to me, this is 08, and I turned to you while the Palace is going crazy after the win to tie the series at 2. I said, Ron, what if I told you that's the last Piston playoff win, not series, game, win. in the next 13 years till 2021? What would you have said? I wouldn't have believed you. I'd have said you're crazy. I was an idiot. Yeah, yeah. Hell, you probably thought they were going to win game five against Boston. (laughs) But they ended up losing those two games, swept by LeBron twice, swept by Milwaukee, 0-14 since that day Mm -hmm. on that fateful day in May 26, 08, 0-14, which is an NBA playoff utility record. They have not won one since. And then you got the Tigers, who now have, I don't think they've won a playoff game now around since 13, because they got swept in 14. It's been that long now. So the question is, who's the next team in? Who will be the next one to win a playoff game? I still think it might be the Wings. Well, you got Stevie Y at the helm. You got to be optimistic. Yeah, and I I think the Pistons are still a ways away. Now they really, you know, you know, they're they may get the first round. They may get the first overall pick tonight. Um, That's a lot draft lottery tonight. I feel like I could do a whole show about this, but I have to ask you because I, I just recently rewatched uh, The Last Dance, and I have to tell you, you you watched that, right? Yeah, well, my absolutely. my favorite part, even more than the Pistons stuff, is is when he's t- when when they were talking about how Larry Bird, uh, after you know that shot, he just looked there. He was the only one that didn't do anything because it was like. Larry, look, I hated Larry Bird. You bought up Boston, and you made me think of Larry Bird. I did not like I, Larry I Bird. Him. I was I a bad boy. But when you look back. At what he did, the first year as a Celtic, and what the Celtics did before and after him, you're not saying Michael's the goat anymore. What do you think? Who do you think's the goat? I, I don't. I don't think it's LeBron. I think it's either Michael or Larry or Wilt or Kareem. Well, I'll tell you why. Not Wilt, but Jordan. Bob. I'll not Wilt. You, I met I'll, Russell. I, I, all right, I'll tell you why it's Michael Jordan. First of all, if Larry's going to do it, I don't know. I mean, I went to college with a guy named Irvin Johnson. I'm disgusted with myself that I didn't put his name in there. Um, I went to college with Magic. We were freshmen the same year. We're two. We're, we're we were born two weeks apart. Irvin, you know, is obviously special to me because of his time at MSU and a championship in '79. But here's why I, if you want to go into this, bridge uh, real quick. This is why when the conversation comes up about G O A T, greatest of all time. And why I go with Jordan over LeBron or anybody or Kobe or anybody else. You gotta change the game to be the GOAT. Yeah. You can't benefit from the game, you have to change it. Yeah. LeBron LeBron has only benefited from the game. He didn't change the game. Michael Jordan changed it. Larry and all right, so Bird and Magic kept the NBA alive. You don't know how close it was to almost folding in 79 before they got there. It was pretty close. And you say, there's no way the NBA, they could have restructured. Yeah, you ask anybody who who won before the Philadelphia Sixers did in 83, and people would be hard-pressed to find out anybody. Well, you'd be. here's what the NBA's last two years before Magic and Bird got drafted. It was Washington and Seattle. They won the last two titles. The, the Bullets and the Sonics. Not that that should be bad, 
but that's where the NBA was. And there are finals were on tape delay after your late local news. That's when the, the NBA finals were not live back then. So, okay, so Magic and Bird kind of saved the league. That's crazy but, to think about, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But what Matt, Michael Jordan did, he made it global. Nobody around the world cared about the NBA until Michael Jordan showed up. And then the Dream Team in 92 solidified it. Global platform all over the world. We never had players really come in from other countries. Now we have them all the time. They're all they're in everybody's roster. That's all because of Michael Jordan. You've got to change the game. You can't just benefit from it. And Jordan changed the game. I can't argue with on that. On top of the fact he's got six championships and was probably still the greatest player ever on the court. He might have changed sports. And and not for nothing, but he wasn't as bad as baseball as people made him out to be. But there's two more quick subjects I want to bring up to you. He could run a little bit, but he wasn't good at it. He a terrible fielder. <laughs> there's two more subjects I want to broach because we're talking yeah. sports here. I got to I gotta ask you. First one yes, sir. is uh, the first one has to do with something I just recently realized because I hadn't been paying attention during COVID. And the second has to do with Vegas yeah. sports, and I'll talk to you about that in a second. But I want to ask you because I, I – I found this out in an extra inning game between the Tigers and the Yankees when Judge took second base. Why, oh why, are we putting runners on second base at the beginning of an inning in extra innings? This just seems like, I, I just don't like it. I, I can't be the only one who doesn't like this. And the other changes with the rules. Well, I, I, you can't see me, but my hand is raised. It's a terrible idea. And the reason the idea is there, and it's, and it's, it's something I have fought for years, they want to... The idea that we're always asking to shorten baseball. The games are too long. I hear this all the time. Games are too long. My answer to that is, are you complaining because you're watching on TV? They're too long? You go, yeah. Turn it off. Right. You got an off button. Turn it off. Are you also complaining because when you go to the game, you're there too long? Yeah. Leave early. Yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to – I'm in a change. I'm not an old-timey guy. I'm not, you know – I'm pre- I think I like to think I'm pretty hip at my age. I'm getting up there, Ron. Ain't young, and I'm telling you, don't don't screw up my baseball. You know, to, to put a runner on second makes no. It's so stupid. It's not the game. That's always been my thing. Is the uh, it's a claim of badge of honor. There's no time limit in baseball. I love well, the fact. Yeah, can I, well, hold on, I'm going to interrupt you. One thing we love about baseball is you got to earn your way. You didn't earn second base to start the tenth inning. Nope. You got to earn your way. That's what baseball is all about. You got to earn your way. And putting the runner in second is an admission that you're doing something that isn't earned. And I don't like baseball for doing that at all. Other thing is, as we, as this is the last thing I'll bring up. But although I could, like, like I said, we could do a whole other sub, something. Always growing up, and I think we're we're not that different in age. But growing up, it was always taboo, and I've always, you know, the gambling in sports and and the, the tabooness of it, and it was always a thing. Well, you'll never see a sports town have a. a have gambling and a sports team. Well, not only has it happened around the country, but it's front and center in Vegas now with the, the Raiders being there. What's your thoughts on that paradigm? I never thought it would happen either. In fact, uh, yesterday I had to actually, uh, on my Facebook, I actually, uh, if you saw it, I actually said I was wrong about something. I uh, Yesterday when the station, when 1270 Detroit and seven other properties from Odyssey, CBS, well, you know, now it's Odyssey, Intercom, flipped to a gambling format. It's now called The Bet. So AM oh. 1270, AM, the AM side of 97.1, is now called The Bet. It's on the Bet QL network. It's just gambling shows. Las Vegas, 1140, the CBS here, Odyssey, uh, KXST, 
was one of the seven that flipped. They are now the bet 1140. I never, I never thought I would see a day when total sports radio stations would be dedicated to gambling shows. Well, I, I, I think it's a dangerous precedent. I think I was, I, al I also was convinced in my lifetime I would never see anywhere to place a sports bet than Las Vegas, and now you can do it. In, states are opening up all the time. You know, right now we have what thirty states or something. I, I think it's really dangerous. I think there's going to be a lot of tragedy from it. Um, for some reason, it's more acceptable. I mean, before Frank Beckman retired a couple of months ago, I would listen to him do live reads for for one of those uh, betting sites. It's well, it's well, then we, actually that's been going on a long time. We had a we had one. I know uh, Stoney used to do uh, at DFN. He used to uh, think at, yeah, DFN even uh, even before he went to ninety seven one. He was doing. Johnny Avello. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, yeah. That's been around a while, but it was just very sporadic and few and far between. Now it's to the point where stations are going to start leading with their gambling foot. And I never thought I'd see that day. I always thought it'd be sports talk first, gambling somewhere. I never thought I'd see this. So, so, so has, now that this is acceptable, should we still be mad at Pete Rose? But, Ron, I mean, the Pete Rose thing, that could be a three-hour topic for yes, me. Because yes. I've, I've had Pete Rose lie to my face. I'm different because I've asked him a million times in the old days about the gambling, had a camera in his face. And if Pete's out here in Vegas, I see Pete a lot. I see Pete all the time. He sets up his card table at Mandalay or something. He, he'd come over, get an autograph. He can walk by. Hi, Pete. Hi, uh. My wife and uh, my wife got me an autograph a couple years ago when she went to Vegas without when me. She was out here and she got yeah. Pete. That's like Pete's job. He yeah. said, well, until, until COVID, he would sit at his table from noon to five. And you could walk by right by him. But he signed it, Ron. He signed it. He signed it saying that he was banned from the game for life. He, if he didn't want to do that, he shouldn't have signed it. That's he true. Signed it. And the only reason he told some truth was when it was time to write a book and yeah. make money. You know what's interesting about a few years ago that I learned that him and A-Rod were really, really good friends, and it just makes sense because isn't A-Rod just doing the same thing Pete does, just keep lying, denying, 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 never mind the evidence? Because they're two, talking about two great players did two horrible things. But they, what they did more, I think, was the biggest thing is, like you said, they keep, keep lying. It's, it's like a little kid who said he didn't take a, the, the cookie. Yeah, you did. I saw no, you. You're not, you're not going to like my attitude on steroids. I have a different attitude on steroids. Well, I'm just saying, like, the, it, not to compare them, but but A Rod has kind of taken a page from Pete's book in the sense oh, yeah. that he no, hasn't, no, he right has right never right owned up to that. it. Yeah. No, you're right about that, Ron. You're absolutely the, the owning up to it, which would make you a bigger person. You're absolutely right about. But for years and years, when I would walk into the Tiger Stadium Clubhouse or Comerica or anyone around the country, uh, spring training, there was always a placard that said, if you gamble and bet on the game, you'll be banned for life. It didn't say that about steroids. It right. didn't say it about cocaine. It didn't say it about marijuana. It said it only about gambling. That's why that's such a big deal, because that really killed the integrity, as we know, way back in the Black Sox scandal and could have and over the years could have really could have knocked the game out of uh, out of submission. It might not have been a bit of game. Well, I, I know that the game has lost fans because of the different scandals over the years, too. Well, there's no doubt, but it still looks pretty strong to me uh, to this day. Uh, people enjoyed the Sosa McGuire home run chase back in the late 90s. And that was, as we find out now, all steroid fueled. And to this day, there are still guys who get suspended because there's taken some kind of performance enhancing drug PED, but I think we've gotten rid of it out of the game. Pretty good. Um, I just never, 
I'm not a fan of keeping those guys out of the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds. Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens. I think they should all be in the Hall of Fame. I just believe that. I just don't think I'm just not as big a steroids person because. You still have to hit that baseball. And Tom House, if you guys have never read this, there's an article. You can find it online from, I think it was May 3rd, 2005. Tom House, the great, the uh, relief, not great, good relief pitcher of the Braves. He's the guy that caught the Hank Aaron home run ball. Uh, Atlanta Braves, by the way, for many years, admitted that guys in the 60s and 70s also did steroids. Wink, wink. That could have included Aaron himself. Sure. I saw Henry Aaron at 39. He had 40 home runs. I actually was right next to him. And he was bloated like Barry Bonds was. Now, I'm not accusing him. I have done that on the radio with Aaron, who passed away. And I, I'm a big Aaron fan. I have asked him, Hank, do you know that you, are you sure you didn't take steroids? Are you sure that you weren't given by a trainer, you know, the old trainers with a cigar out of there, hey, Henry, I got a B12 shot for you. I'll make you feel better, buddy. How do you know that wasn't steroids? Well. It could have been. It could, Tom House, it's not me. Tom no. House said he had teammates on the Atlanta Braves in the 70s. He had, His quote was, back then we didn't get beaten, we got out milligrammed. That's his line. I didn't, and by the way, Tom House is the, quarterback guru for guys like Tom Brady. He's their throwing coach. Well, I want to make clear this is purely hyperbole. However, um, someone, I think Pudge Rodriguez got a free pass here in Detroit. On the steroid issue? Yeah. I, Ron, I, after after that all came down and the testing was going to start in baseball, and if you remember, Pudge came back at spring that year uh, looking like a Calvin Klein model. He'd lost all that bulk. I don't know why he called him Pudge anymore. <laughs> well, the, but I remember going up to his locker, and I was pretty friendly with with Yvonne Rodriguez, and I hadn't seen him since he lost that weight until that first day in Lakeland. And I walked up to his locker and said, oh, oh, "I said, okay, all right, what's going? On? What is this? Ah, oh, man, what are you? Hey, man, I lost weight. Worked out hard." I I to this day think if he played if he was wearing a Yankees uniform when that happened, his name would have came up more. Not to say he did it or he didn't do it, but it didn't look good. For people who saw him on a day-end basis. No, but you know what? Prior to 05, there was no testing. Baseball had no policy. Right. To be fair. So, so base, when he found out it was going to be a problem, he stopped. He got rid of it. And, and that, you know, so that's my point. If baseball did not think enough of it to start a policy until 05, then the only two guys to me that should never get in are Rafael Palmero, who's got 503,000, both numbers, and Manny Ramirez because they tested positive after the policy was in place. Fair enough. And those, yeah. and those two guys should be in the Hall of Fame, but they'll never get in because they tested after the policy. Well, I got to tell you, this has been a thrill. Not only did I get to interview you and learn about your 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 history in radio and television, but I got for the last 15, 20 minutes to be a host of sports talk show with you. This has been I awesome. Like Ron, you got the chops, man. I don't know why you're <laughs> what, what, go, go and do it. Do it if, if that's what you want. You know what you're doing. And I told you we talked on the – Oh, you got a great set of pipes, and you got it going on, my man. I and appreciate I, you. And and to put together what you're putting together, I give you high props. I'm giving you the high sign, as Rob Rob Parker would say. Uh, kudos for doing that project. That's got to be a lot of work. It is, but it's a labor of love. So I'm I'm looking forward to actually sharing it with people because I've learned a I'm lot about radio. Seeing, I'm looking forward to seeing what you come up with. Very cool. I will keep you updated. I will keep you posted. I I thank you very much for your time, Mark. I, now, before I let you go, are you are you doing a podcast, or you were doing a podcast? Oh, you know what? We, uh, I got my, my 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 podcast partner who's terrific. In fact, um, he's on this week on a on Kate on here in Las, Las Vegas. Uh, 
Nick Monsanto. We do. We had a podcast going in nineteen. We we he went. He had a gig he had to go do in another town. We were going to start it up again right as COVID began, and we put it on a hiatus for the pandemic. And we we'll, we will bring it back. We really had a good time doing the podcast, and we have sponsors, but we haven't done it yet. But yes, I was doing a podcast with him out here. Well, I, I hope I can, let me know when that continues because I'll be tuning in. I really I I think you're phenomenal, and and like oh, you know you, you said those nice things about me. I think. You know, you could you could you could go and turn on a mic right now and hold an audience right now. So I might get back to it. I just you know what? It's this whole pandemic thing has really been something, hasn't it? I mean, it's been it's, crazy. It's been nuts. So one day I'm not done yet. I, I guess I said I'll do some more national stuff, but I might go back and do a local thing. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. There's been a lot of uh, learning more about your career and, and again, thanks uh, all the best to you and yours. Been fun being with you, Ron, anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Mark, and thank you for tuning in to Radio Days, the podcast. And, of course, uh, keep an eye out for uh, Radio Days, the movie, coming later this year. Again, if you'd like to help out, become a producer for this movie, click uh, on the Patreon or uh, PayPal link. You can find that at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Uh, Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos, photography headshots, maybe you need drone video, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com, where you can also hear last season's podcast. Um, you can also check out the uh, swag store, hat, shirts, other gear and apparel uh, can be found at ronrobinsonstudios.com as well. Tune in next week for another episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Until then. You can't go. All the plants are going to die. <laughs>